Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. You can turn to Ezra chapter 7. The gap between Ezra chapter 6 and Ezra chapter 7 is about 57 years. And in Ezra chapter 7, we're going to be introduced to the namesake of this book. Ezra himself is now going to show up. And we're just four chapters away from the end of the book of Ezra. We don't read a whole lot about Ezra here. We're introduced to him. He writes occasionally through this section in the first person. What we're going to find out about him is that he knows the law of God. He is a direct descendant of the priests of Israel. And he's going to argue that Israel, having returned to Jerusalem, have also, through these 57 years, returned to their old ways. And their old ways are to rebel against God. Here God has just given Israel this incredible demonstration of his absolute power and authority and that he controls human history and he's told them they're going to be in Babylon for 70 years and at the end of 70 years Cyrus a Persian king has allowed them to come back (laughs) rebuild the temple just like he has described but then as always happens with human beings they kind of got used to that Hmm. they kind of took it for granted and started intermarrying with the people groups that were living in the area And you may recall that all the way back at the book of Moses, they were told, don't intermarry with the surrounding nations, specifically because the surrounding nations are worshiping foreign gods, are engaged in kinds of wickedness that you folks are supposed to keep yourself separate from. And if you marry with them, they're going to steal your hearts away. If you let your sons have those daughters, those wives are going to take them away. If you let your daughters marry those sons, those husbands are going to take your women away from the devotion of God, the devotion of Yahweh and the law of Yahweh. So when Ezra arrives in Jerusalem, he discovers that they've gone back to intermarrying again. And the last two chapters of the book of Ezra all have to do with him calling them to repentance and them agreeing ultimately to leave their foreign wives and to devote themselves, take a vow and devote themselves to letting the foreign wives go and to return to the worship of God. At this point, the Israelites have been told, don't do something specific. They did it. Ezra's going to hold them to account and say, you're rebelling against God they're going to change their ways. They're going to repent. Now, the next thing you're going to see about Ezra, as we're introduced to him in the next two chapters, (laughs) is that he not only believes in the sovereignty of God, 
the way that we advance notions of the sovereignty of God, but he so believes it and is so convinced of it that he sees God in everything that occurs and keeps saying so. A Persian king, Artaxerxes, is going to make a decree that is going to allow Ezra to come back to Jerusalem with more people. And not only that, bring all the gold and silver that was originally in the temple and bring the temple furnishings and bring all that stuff back to the temple. And it is a foreign king who's doing it, but Ezra doesn't give credit to the foreign king for doing it. He says, God did that. God made sure that this all worked out. Then he's going to say, that he took the trip to Jerusalem with all these people, and it's a four-month trip back to Jerusalem. And he has to deal with the fact that there are robbers on the road along the way, and they're carrying gold and silver and furnishings. And so rather than go to the king and ask the king for guards to protect their way all the way back home, he tells the king, Our God is going to protect us. He's in this. He wants this done. He's going to take care of us. And so we read that he was ashamed to go to the king for it because he had already said to the king, our God is capable of taking care of us. And then they arrive safely in Jerusalem. There's no robberies. They're not fallen upon. And right away, Ezra says, and that's because God showed his favor. That's because God took care of us. So what you're going to see in this part of Ezra is how he gives God credit for everything that occurs when I was reading through it again today I was reminded of a fellow that I met out in Los Angeles who was an Indian fella from India and a lot of his notions of fate he brought with him into his Christianity And he was one of the early people I ever met who had such a concept of God's absolute control of everything that pretty much every statement he made included the phrase, if God is willing, this will happen. And so when I met him and drove him around Los Angeles and stuff, really liked him, really nice guy. And when I dropped him off at the end of the day, I said to him, I hope we meet again. And I really did. I really hoped I was going to meet him again. I never did. But I said to him, I hope we meet again. And he said, if God's willing, we'll meet again. And as I was driving home, again, being in the very Arminian church environment I was in in Los Angeles, that kind of thinking of whatever happens is God's will. And if God wills it, it's going to occur. So everything that occurs is ipso facto the will of God. That kind of thinking really appealed to me. And I wanted to remember that. I wanted to think like that. I wanted to be aware that whatever occurs, that's God's doing, regardless of what secondary causes he uses to accomplish it. That behind all of it, his sovereignty plays out through everything that happens. And uh, that's why to this day, when we talk about the sovereignty of God, I keep making those statements that whatever you're going through right now, that's the sovereignty of God. Whatever he's allowed into your life, that's the sovereignty of God. Whatever's occurring in the world right now, that's the sovereignty of God. Whatever the government's doing right now, that's the sovereignty of God. Whatever diseases and heartaches we're fighting right now, that's the sovereignty of God. That God is the primary mover behind absolutely 
everything. He is always the first cause of everything. And you're going to see Ezra just make that obvious. With each event that takes place that's positive for him and the travelers that he is bringing back to Jerusalem, the very fact that the king let them go, the very fact the king gave them back their gold, the fact that no robbers fell upon them, the fact that they get to Jerusalem and reestablish the worship again, all of that, he says, God, that's all God. God did that. God did that. Even though all these human beings seem to put in the effort, he never credited the human beings with the accomplishment. He always credits God with the doing of it. And I think that's a really good mindset to have. Yes. We need to recognize that God is always the sovereign cause behind everything. Okay, so as I said uh, when we began, 57 years has lapsed between chapter 6 and chapter 7. We know that because Ezra is going to tell us specifically the times and the dates and who's the king. And he's going to tell us about the four-month journey. And he gives us the advantage of dating everything. Now, if you still have this handout that I gave you a long time ago, chapter 6 happened under King Cyrus. And at the very top of the handout, you can see when Cyrus was king. What we're going to read starting in chapter 7 happens under King Artaxerxes. And so in between, there's been Cambyses and Smyrtus, Darius I and Xerxes, who's Ahasuerus, that's the time of Esther, and now Artaxerxes is the king, and that's the time frame that chapter 7 picks up in. So 57 years have lapsed. The temple has been rebuilt, the first wave has been there, but are now rebelling, going back to their old ways. Ezra the priest is going to come and correct them. Starting at chapter 7, verse 1. Now, after these things, that little phrase, that after these things, that's the after the 57 years. After everything that occurred previously, after these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, there went up Ezra, the son of Zariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahatab, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Merioth, son of Zariah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abishua, son of Phineas, son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. So the whole point, <laughs> thank you very little, the whole point of that genealogy that he just spelled out is so that you know he has the genuine pedigree of being a direct descendant right from Eliezer and Aaron. So he has the right to act as priest among the people of Israel. His pedigree is without question. This Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was a scribe, Skilled in the law of Moses. The fact that he is called a scribe, he also is called a teacher. That means that he was capable of writing. He was capable of reading. So he's capable of teaching people the things that have been written down about the law of God. So he's a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all that he requested because 
the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. Notice that. There's the first indication of what I was just describing. The king gave Ezra everything he required and requested in order to go back to Jerusalem with people, with the money and the gold and the silver that belonged in the temple, with the temple utensils. He was allowed to go and do that, and yet Ezra takes the time to say, and the only reason that that happened was because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. God did this. I didn't do it. It's not because I'm such a good guy, says Ezra. I'm speaking as Ezra now, first person. It's not because I'm such a witty, clever guy in Babylon. It's because God showed favor, because God is accomplishing his will, and therefore the king had favor on me. Verse 7, and some of the sons of Israel and some of the priests of the Levites and the singers and the gatekeepers and the temple servants went up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. And he came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. And on the first of the first month, he began to go up from Babylon. And on the first of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. It's a four-month journey. Because, because he walked really fast. Because he had good camels and donkeys. Because, it, no, what does he say? Because the good hand of his God was upon him. As we're saying it again, the king had favor on me because the hand of God was on me. I had a four-month journey to Jerusalem and robbers didn't fall on me because the hand of God was on me. God gets credit for everything that occurs. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach God's statutes and ordinances in Israel. Now, this is a copy of the decree which King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, learned in the words of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes to Israel. At verse 12, he starts writing it. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, perfect peace. And now I have issued a decree that any of the people of Israel and their priests and their Levites in my kingdom who are willing to go to Jerusalem may go with you. For as much as you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand, and to bring the silver and the gold, which the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, and all the silver and the gold, which you shall find in the whole province of Babylon, along with the freewill offerings of the people and of the priests, who offered willingly for the house of their God, which is in Jerusalem, with this money, therefore, you shall diligently buy bulls and rams and lambs with their grain offerings and their libations and offer them on the altar of the house of your God, which is in Jerusalem. 
And whatever seems good to you and to your brothers to do with the rest of the gold and the silver, you may do according to the will of your God. Also, the utensils which are given to you for the service of the house of your God, deliver in full to the God of Jerusalem. And the rest of the needs for the house of your God, for which you may have occasion to provide, provide for it from the royal treasury. And I, even I, King Artaxerxes, issue a decree to all the treasurers who are in the provinces beyond the river, that whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven, may require of you, it shall be done diligently, even up to a hundred talents of silver, a hundred cores of wheat, a hundred baths of wine, a hundred baths of oil and salt as needed. Whatever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it be done with zeal for the house of the God of heaven, lest there be wrath against the kingdom of the king and his sons. We also inform you that it is not allowed to impose tax, tribute, or toll on any of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the doorkeepers, the Nethanim, the servants of this house of God. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God, which is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges that they may judge all the people who are in the province beyond the river, even all those who know the law of your God. And you may teach anyone who is ignorant of them. And whosoever will not observe the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed upon him strictly, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of goods and for imprisonment. Okay, that is really an astounding thing for a Persian non-believing king to write. It is an amazing decree that Ezra is going to be allowed not only to go back, but to take the gold and the silver and the utensils and the people, and that as they're traveling and when they get to Jerusalem, that the kings of the provinces, the governors of the areas beyond the river where Jerusalem is, can't tax them, can't toll them, can't take any of that money from them, which is what a tax would do or a toll would do. In other words, the king is saying, everything I give to you, you take to Jerusalem and you use that for the worship and the honor of your God. And then he tells you what the inspiration is so that God's not going to pour out his wrath on the house of the king or his sons. That's an astounding thing for him to conclude. By the way, you did hear me say the word nethanim. If you're not familiar with that word, it just means the people who did the daily work in the temple. They're the, the temple janitors, for lack of a better word. And he says that from the highest, from the Levites, to the singers and the doorkeepers, and the lowest, the Nethanim, and the servants of this house of God, all of them were going to be protected against any kind of taxation or tolls or anything that might decrease the amount of money they show up in Jerusalem with. Okay, I'm really stressing how amazing that is because now Ezra is going to do the same thing that you've seen him do twice already. Rather than say, wow, the king is really being good to us. Wow, the king is really being beneficial for Israel. Here's where he puts it. Verse 27, 
Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart to adorn the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. So it's the house of the Lord, the temple of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And that Lord, because he wants his temple worship restored, laid it on the heart of a foreign king to let the Israelites come back and reestablish that worship and to bring back all the gold and silver and bring back all the utensils and have enough money that you can buy all the animals that you're going to need, even down to the salt that you're going to need and the libations and the wine and the grains, all of that that you're going to need. God knows that Israel's going to need that to reestablish his worship. So he moved on the foreign king to give Ezra and those people all that stuff to bring to the house of the Lord. And Ezra said, all of it's God. It's God. God can do all of it. God wants his worship. So what does he do? He sovereignly controls human history and even the heart of the king, which he turns like rivers of water any way he wants to do anything he wants with a king. Like Artaxerxes, who would refer to himself as a king of kings. He's powerless against God. Once God says this is what's going to happen, and once God has already predicted it through the prophets that this is going to happen, once God has said, you're going to be in Babylon for 70 years, and then you're going to come back here, and then we're going to rebuild Jerusalem. Well, that all has to happen. Therefore, God can say it absolutely is going to happen because I'm going to make it happen. I use the phrase frequently that prophecy only works in the Bible. Prophecy only works if the future is definite. If there's any chance, any possibility that the future is up for grabs, Prophecy doesn't work, but the only person who can accurately prophesy and not only foretell, but decree the future is the one who has the power to make the future go his way. So it's not that he looks down the long prophetic telescope and says, oh, I see what men are going to do. I see what people are going to do. I see that someday that king is just going to inexplicably, for no good reason, give up a bunch of his wealth and let them take it back to Jerusalem to worship God. No, God doesn't see the future and then say, oh, I see it in a weird Gene Dixon-y sort of way. I know what's coming, so I predict it. He says, this is what the future is because I'm going to do it. And because I'm in charge of everything and I'm sovereign... I'll tell you what I'm going to do in advance so that you recognize it's me doing it. I'll tell you I'm going to bring you back after 70 years. And then he brings them back after 70 years. And they shouldn't be surprised that they came back after 70 years because God said they were going to come back after 70 years. They shouldn't be surprised that the temple's being rebuilt because that's what God said he was going to do. And so I just want you to see that Ezra has that same mindset of the absolute sovereignty of God, the absolute control of human history to the degree that God can even move on the hearts of the king of kings, the Persian king who is the major king of the Middle East, the king who reigns over other kings, the king who is in charge of everything that goes on in his kingdom. He, his heart, his intention, his will can be changed instantly by a God who is absolutely sovereign. And Ezra says so. Blessed be the Lord, 
the God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of Israel. Blessed be that Yahweh, the God of our fathers, who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart to adorn the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, and has extended loving kindness to me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. So why was Ezra getting all this goodwill? Why was he being given all this money and the ability to go back? He says that was the loving kindness of God. The loving kindness of God. It wasn't just God satisfying and fulfilling his own prophetic word. It was also God in the midst of that being kind and patient and loving and gracious to Ezra. So, okay. Anybody here have anything good happen today? Your hands better all go up. (laughs) Anybody here not know your own name? Okay, I'm glad no hands went up there. Yeah, you've had a good day. You drove here in a car. You're wearing clothes. You had food today. You know your own name. Life is good. You might have a sickness, but you know what? Jeff had a cough. He's getting better. That's good. That's goodness. What is that? What is, why are those good things happening in your life? Especially if you believe what we all believe about total depravity and what the Bible says about our natural state and our rebellion and our sinfulness before an absolutely holy God. What do we deserve? We deserve hell forever starting now. We deserve God's judgment and wrath. That's what we deserve. Not only are we not getting that, we're getting comfort. We're getting air-conditioned homes. Blessing after blessing blessing we're getting. Why? According to Ezra, that's God demonstrating his loving kindness. That's God demonstrating that facet of his character and personality that would only be known, would only be recognized by him showing good favor to people who just don't deserve it. And so Ezra says, it's not because... Of me, it's not because I'm so great. It's God who moved on the heart of the king so that I would have all these blessings because God is demonstrating his loving kindness. That's a good mindset to have. That's, That's a good attitude of thankfulness to carry around with you all the time. Because, let's be honest, we're really whiny children. It's really easy for us to complain about stuff. But from God's perspective, you're doing fine because he is giving you all the goodness and the blessings and the sustenance and the food and the clothes and the cars and the stuff you don't really need that you have. The computers and the Nintendo and the 50-inch TV and the couch and chair more couch there's only one of you you can sit in a chair you own more than one chair you own all this excess you you only need one set of clothes you got a closet full you've got all these blessings all this goodness and so after god has poured out all that loving kindness on you should you really whine should you really complain 
Well, Ezra is showing you what the proper mindset is. The proper mindset is, wow, good happens, and that's just the loving kindness of God demonstrated in my life. And I think it is a crime when human beings fail to recognize that because we have it so good. Anyway, blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart to adorn the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, and has extended loving kindness to me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. Thus, I was strengthened according to the hand of the Lord my God upon me. Even the strength I have to do the thing that the king is allowing me to do. Even the going back to Jerusalem over four months and <coughs> taking all this wealth with me, even the strength that is required to do that, God gave me. It's all part of God accomplishing what God said he's going to accomplish. Why? For his glory. It's always for his glory. It's always for his purposes so that his worship, worship is reestablished in his house. That's why he's doing it. But he's doing it all through the people that he has chosen and giving them the strength, the power, the money, the goodwill, the welfare. He's giving them everything necessary to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. So just don't miss how often Ezra has said here that blessed is the Lord who put such a thing in the king's heart. Okay, God did that. And has extended loving kindness to me before the king and his counselors and before the king's mighty princes. Okay, God did that. And thus I was strengthened according to the hand of the Lord my God. Okay, God did that. And I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. God, it's all God. God did that. God is in charge of this. And I think it's not a far stretch to say, because God's in charge of everything. And that includes you, and that includes me, and that includes our lives. And that means, like I said a minute ago, and like I keep saying, that means wherever you are, whatever you're going through, whatever your life entails at this exact moment, that's what God decided was appropriate for your life. And that will make you much more content with your life. Because when you whine and complain and start hearing yourself saying things like, I don't deserve this. Yes, you do. You, whatever trouble comes your way, you deserve that. Whatever good that comes your way, you didn't deserve that. That's the loving kindness of God just being good to you. So that's the mindset that Ezra lays out. I just want to distress it. That takes us to chapter 8. Now, at chapter 8, Ezra is going to name the heads of the father's households and the genealogical enrollment of those who went with me up from Babylon during the reign of King Artaxerxes. That's what verse 1 says. And then he's going to name a bunch of guys. Okay, now, this is a, a question of kindness on your part. Do you want me to read all the names? Because I'll take a shot at them. I did so well before? Yeah, but that average is going to go way down now. <laughs> I'm going to tank right here. Now, these are the heads of their father's households and the genealogical enrollment of those who went up with me from Babylon during the reign of King Artaxerxes, the son of Phineas, Gershom, 
and the sons of Ithamar, Daniel, and the sons of David, Hattush, and the sons of Zechariah, who was of the sons of Perosh, Zechariah, and with him 150 males who were in the genealogical list. The reason he keeps saying within the genealogical list, you might recall earlier when the first wave came to Jerusalem, there were some who couldn't prove their pedigree. They weren't part of the list of Israel. And so they weren't allowed to have all the rites of worship within the temple that the Israelites who had the pedigree. So he's saying the 150 males that came, around with Zach, who, that came along with Zechariah, they were all in the genealogical list. They were all able to prove that they were genealogically the sons of Israel. Verse 4, of the sons of Pahath Moab, Elihoani, the son of Zerahiah, and 200 males with him. So there's several hundred people that are going to be traveling with Ezra. Of the sons of Zechaniah and Jehaziel, there were 300 males with him. And of the sons of Aden, Ebed, the son of Jonathan, and 50 males with him. And of the sons of Elam, Jeshiah, the sons of Athaliah, and 70 males with him. And of the sons of Shephatiah, Zebediah, the son of Michael, and 80 males with him, and of the sons of Joab, Obadiah, the son of Jehiel, and 218 males with him, and of the sons of Shelomith, and the sons of Josephiah, that would be it, the sons of Josephiah, and 160 males with him, and of the sons of Bibai, Zechariah, the son of Bebi, and 28 males with him, and of the sons of Asgod, Johananan, and the son of Hakatan, and 110 males with him, and of the sons of Adonikam, the last ones, these being their names, Eliphalet, Jeul, and Shemaiah, and 60 males with them, and of the sons of Bigvi, Uthai, and Zabud, and 70 males with them. Now, I assembled them at the river that runs to Ahava, where we camped for three days. And when I observed the people and the priests, I didn't find any Levites there. Well, if you're going to go reestablish temple worship in Jerusalem, you've got to have Levites. The Levites are the tribe that's been separated by God specifically to do the work of the temple. So he takes a look at all these hundreds of people that have been gathered to come with him. No Levites. So I sent to Eliezer, and Ariel, and Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jerib, Ethnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, who are leading men, and for Jorabib and Elnathan, who were the teachers. And I sent them to Ido, the leading man, in the place Casaphia. And I told them what to say to Ido and his brothers, the temple servants at the place of Casaphiah. That is, to bring ministers to us for the house of our God. So he named all of those people to say that I picked out these particular men out of the group that was in front of me. And I sent them specifically to the temple so that they would send us some of their Levites so that I'd have some Levites with me when I got to Jerusalem. That was a very long way of him saying what I just said in two sentences. And according to the good hand of our God upon us, they brought us a man of insight 
of the sons of Malai, the sons of Levi, the son of Israel, namely Sherebiah and his sons and brothers, 18 men. Here again, notice, don't miss it. Don't miss it because Ezra is doing it on purpose. He realizes that there aren't any Levites among them. He sends emissaries to go to a temple in order to ask for some of the Levites. They come back with some Levites, and he doesn't say the Levites came back because the emissaries I sent were so persuasive. (coughs) Or they understood the argument that there have to be some Levites in the temple in Jerusalem, and so by that argument they agreed to come. And say any of that. He says the reason they came is according to the good hand of our God. Why did these men show up? God. Why are all these things happening? God. Why are we getting favor from the king? God. Why are we going to Jerusalem for four months and not no robbers are falling on us? God. Why do we have Levites now in our midst? God. It's all God. And according to the good hand of our God upon us, they brought us a man of insight of the sons of Mili or Malai, the sons of Levi, the sons of Israel, namely Sherebiah and his sons and brothers, 18 men, and Hashabiah and Jeshaiah of the sons of Merari and his brothers and their sons, 20 men, and 220 of the temple's servants whom David And the princes had given for the service of the Levites, all of them designated by name. So then I proclaimed, he was so grateful, he was so thankful that God gave them all these Levites to come to the temple in Jerusalem, that in verse 21 he says, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God, to seek from him a safe journey for us and for our little ones and for all our possessions. What does that show you? Ezra knows that he's being sent back to Jerusalem by the very will and the very hand of God. He understands that it is the purpose, the prophetic purpose, and even the loving kindness of God to send them back to Jerusalem. But before he takes the first step, He prays to God. He knows this is what God wants. He knows this is what God's doing. But before we go, we need to fast. We need to humble ourselves before God. And we need to entreat God that he protect us and our little ones while we make this journey. So even though, even though, big theological concept here, Even though we know God is sovereign, even though we know that what's happening in our lives is what God has determined for our lives, even though we know from the Bible and theologically our understanding of God would insist that it's God who's in charge of absolutely everything, but then right along with it, even though Jesus would proclaim God's absolute sovereignty over everything and that all power and authority is with him and that God wants to give you good things. God knows you have need of these things. He knows you need bread. He knows you have food. And yet Jesus himself took the time to say, now that you know that, go pray to him. You know that a wicked man, if he has a son and the son says, I need bread, is not going to give him a snake. That's Jesus' example. In other words, God knows you need good things. 
God knows you need food. He knows you need clothes. He knows he has to provide those things for you. And it's his good pleasure to provide those things for you. Now go ask. Now go pray. Now go recognize that he's the source of everything you've got. Now go admit to him that you recognize that he's the source of everything you've got. He's going to give you food. He's going to give you bread. He knows you have need of it. But in your prayer, you according to Jesus, need to pray, give us today our daily bread. So that concept goes all the way back here to Ezra saying, it is God's will, it is God's absolute determination. Look at what the king has already proclaimed. Look at what the king has already said. Look at the money that's been put into our hands. Look at all the people who are gathered. Clearly, this is all the will of God. We've given God all the credit. God has made his hand very obvious in the midst of that. Now, get down in front of God, humble yourself, and pray to him. So, I said all that to say, big theological concept. Sometimes people say, you who believe in the sovereignty of God, why do you pray to him? And my answer is always, why would you pray to him if he's not sovereign? An absolute sovereign God is the God you would go pray to. Not only because he's the source of everything you have and need, but because he is a sovereign God who requires your worship, your prayers, your recognition that he is the one that's giving you everything. And that's the character of God. That's the nature of God. His sovereignty and praying to him are not contradictory. His sovereignty is the reason you pray to him. Because he's the one who can actually do something about it. So that's what I see here with Ezra. We're, we're going to take this trip. We've got all these men. We've, we've got a lot of men with us. So if robbers fall on us, we got a lot of men with us. But we got some children with us too, and we got some money with us. So I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for us and our little ones and all our possessions. I don't want to engage in beating a dead horse here. I think I've made my point, but again, notice that Ezra knows that he's going to have a safe trip. He knows he's going to get to Jerusalem. He knows that's what God has decreed. If he has all of the gold and silver that belongs in the temple, and he has the utensils, the holy utensils, that are dedicated to the work of God, and he has all that in his hand, and he has all these men, he knows he's going to make it. But what does he do? Praise to God that he makes it. We're self-sufficient people by nature. We get up in the morning and we assume that when we throw our feet out of the bed, they're going to hit the floor and we're going to stand up and we're going to be fine. Now, the older you get, the more surprising it is that sometimes that doesn't work. <laughs> I get up some mornings, put my feet on the floor and go, oh, gee, oh, wow, well, what happened there? The people on the Internet couldn't see that visual demonstration. Video. <laughs> That's why we don't video these things. We are people who feel self-sufficient. We are people who believe, and it's easy for us to believe, that everything is just going to always be the way it's always been because we think we have some kind of control over things. And the reality is absolutely everything is in God's sovereign hand, 
and therefore it is necessary for us to always recognize God's sovereignty and our need not only of him but to pray to him in order to honor him to show him that we know that he provides us with everything it would be easy for us to think I did it I worked a job I got a paycheck I bought a car but according to Ezra that's God so what are you going to name in this lifetime that's not God then well nothing whatever you got whatever happens that's God the other day I was reading in Joshua where the city of Jericho falls God gives specific instructions about how they're going to defeat this city and they do it in a completely one-sided way no losses to Israel, complete losses to the Jericho inhabitants. And so... Jerichonians. Yeah, Jerichonians. I just made that up. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> so, what do they do? There's this little town called AI. We don't need very many people there. And they get beat yeah. by this tiny little city. What's missing is they didn't ask God. Absolutely. Because God would have answered their prayer saying, there is sin in the camp. Yeah. Which they could have dealt with before 36 men were killed. Yeah. Trying to take the little city of Ai. And when Joshua falls on his face, how do you let this happen, God? God just says, get up. Yeah. Get up. I don't know why you're moping about this. Yeah. There is something you need to deal with. Yeah, it's God saying, the answer is obvious. How did you miss this? Because you didn't talk to me. Because you didn't talk to me. That's how, that's how you missed it. Yeah. That's absolutely right. All right, let's finish up here. Uh, we are at verse 22. He's explaining that he fasted and prayed to God because he was not going to request the king give him any troops or horsemen to protect them. Verse 22 says, For I was ashamed. That's an odd translation. Some of your translations are more along the line of, I, it's not that he was shame-faced. Oh, I'm ashamed of my God. No, it was he was reticent to go ask the king because he had already declared to the king the absolute sovereignty of God and that God can protect us. For I was ashamed to request from the king troops and horsemen to protect us from the enemy on the way because we had said to the king, the hand of our God is favorably disposed to all those who seek him. But his power and his anger are against all those who forsake him. So we fasted and we sought our God concerning this matter, and he listened to our entreaty. What's the evidence that God listened? What's the evidence that God responded favorably? They made the trip, and nothing bad happened. So notice again that Ezra didn't say, we made the trip and nothing bad happened. Hey, <laughs> coinkadink. Coincidence. You don't like coinkadink? Fine. Yeah, that happened, but that, you know, it was just happenstance. No, he saw that as the evidence that God heard his prayer. In other words, every time you pray, give us this day our daily bread, and then you eat bread, God heard your prayer. God provided for you. Every time you're sick, 
or someone you love is sick and you pray, God, raise them up and they get well, that's evidence God heard your prayer. He responded favorably toward you. So that's what Ezra sees in it. Then I set apart 12 of the leading priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and with them 10 of their brothers. I'm glad they're not named. And I weighed out to them the silver and the gold and all the utensils, the offering for the house of our God, which the king and his counselors and his princes and all Israel present there had offered. Thus I weighed into their hands 650 talents of silver and silver utensils worth 100 talents and 100 gold talents and 20 gold bowls worth 1,000 derricks and two utensils of fine, shiny bronze, precious as gold. Then I said to them, you, you priests, you Levites that have come now, you're holy to the Lord. You're consecrated. You're separated unto the Lord. And the utensils are holy. And the silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord God of your fathers. So watch and keep them until you weigh them before the leading priests and the Levites and the head of the father's households of Israel at Jerusalem in the chambers of the house of the Lord. Notice the word weigh over and over again. It's not just counting it out. It's weighing it to know exactly how much it is because here we are about to take the journey and we're giving you the watch of this stuff and it's appropriate that you have it because it's holy and you're holy. But then when we get to Jerusalem, it's going to get weighed again and we're going to know whether all of it showed up. And don't forget, Ezra's a scribe. He's going to write this stuff down. This is how much I gave them. This is how much showed up. Verse 30, So the priests and the Levites accepted the weighed out silver and the gold and all the utensils to bring them to Jerusalem to the house of our Lord God. Then we journeyed from the river Ahava, on the 12th of the first month to go to Jerusalem. And the hand of our God was over us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and the ambushes on the way. Thus we came to Jerusalem, and we remained there for three days. Again, look at Ezra, give God credit. We had a safe journey. He didn't think that was just good fortune. Well, it just worked out that way. The robbers were busy somewhere else. They were probably robbing somebody else, and we were just lucky. We were so lucky they didn't fall on us. No, what he sees is God took care of us. God protected us. You drove your car to get here today. Some of you drove from distances to get here today. Why did you get here safe? Because God allowed us to get here safe. Yeah, God brought you. You're going to drive home. Are you going to get home safe tonight and make it to your beds because you're a really good driver? Even if you're an excellent driver, you can't say that about everybody in Nashville. <laughs> how come none of those lunatics or any of those drunk drivers or any of those drivers that are on drugs, how come none of them crashed into you on the way here tonight? God's will. God's will. He protected you. He took care of you on your journey. So again, it's God. It's constantly God. It's always God. There's no facet of life that you can point at where you say, it's all God except here. It's always God in every aspect of life. And you got here safely because 
He was kind to you. There are people right now having car accidents. Right now. It's occurring. There are people right now on this planet getting robbed. They're not you. There are people right now fighting their addictions. It's not you. It's, God has been really, really kind to you. And I think that Ezra is demonstrating to us the necessity of always recognizing God in every aspect of what occurs in your life and being grateful, being genuinely thankful. When Jeff gets over this cough, he's going to be thankful. But who's he going to be thankful to? Steve? Steve didn't do anything. He's not going to be thankful to Micah. He's going to be thankful to the great physician that he got better. That's the attitude I'm talking about. All right, we're very, very nearly done here. Verse 33. And on the fourth day that they've come to Jerusalem, the silver and the gold and the utensils were weighed out in the house of God into the hands of Merimoth, the son of Uriah the priest, and with him was Eliezer, the son of Phinehas. And with them were the Levites, Josabad, and the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, the son of Benui. And everything was numbered and weighed, and all the weight was recorded at that time. So let's compare. Four months ago, this is how much there was. Now how much is there? It was all written down. It was all recorded. It was all put into the, to the annals that Ezra kept. The exiles who had come from the captivity offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel. Twelve bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs, 12 male goats for a sin offering, all as a burnt offering to the Lord. Then they delivered the king's edict to the king's satraps and to the governors in the provinces beyond the river, and they supported the people and the house of God. It's like, look, we got a letter right here in our hand from the king, from Artaxerxes, king of kings, saying, number one, you can't tax us, na-na-na-na-na-na. You can't take anything from us, and you have to support us out of your treasury if we need anything. So there, take that. Now, when these things had been completed, the princes approached me, saying, those are the princes of Israel, saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands according to their abominations, those of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Perizzites, the the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Democrites, the Moabites, and the Egyptians, and the Amorites. Did I get away with that? Did I slip that in? Okay. (laughs) So that's what we're going to pick up next week. No sooner does Ezra get there. Finally, there's a priest with us. Finally, there's somebody who's in the lineage of the high priest. And right away, he's told, the people aren't following the law of God. So the next two chapters, which are going to close up the book, are going to be Ezra dealing with that issue, how they're going to resolve it, and then the book just ends and picks up again in Nehemiah, which is why originally Ezra and Nehemiah were one book. 
and then have been separated down through time because the story continues. It just continues in the next book. So next week we will get through the book of uh, Ezra and then we will go on to Nehemiah. And somewhere in there we'll also spend some time in Zechariah since he's prophesying right about that time. Okay? Okay. That's the game plan. Don't you like the lessons of Ezra? Yes. Yes. It's good to know that wherever you look in the Bible, God's sovereignty just comes shining through. Mm -hmm. I had somebody ask me, this goes back a number of years. So where do you get that idea of the sovereignty of God? And to quote Alex from last night at men's meeting, he quoted me and said, I like it when Jim says, a little thing I call the Bible. (laughs) Because that's what it is. Everywhere you look in the Bible, it's there. There was a fellow who came to GCA years ago who said to me, now that I see it, now that I see the sovereignty of God, I didn't see it in the Bible before, but now that I see it, I can't unsee it. It's everywhere. And it's right there in the middle of Ezra. All right, questions? Yes, sir. I I find it amusing that Ezra gives all credit to God, saying God is with us. He will keep us safe. The journey will be complete. But I'm weighing the gold and silver. (laughs) It's like he knows somebody in the crowd. (laughs) He knows the proclivity of men. I just did a quick check, and I'm not sure my figures are accurate. But the gold and silver, just the gold and silver, not the vessels, etc., were worth at least $30 million in today's dollars. Be kind of tempting, wouldn't it be? Well, you can see why there might be some concern about robbers. Absolutely. Oceans 11, 12, and 13. (laughs) Anything else? After what happened at the party in Babylon with the hand writing on the wall, he might have been ready to get rid of the vessels. (laughs) You would think. All right, anything else? Nothing else? Okay. Say goodbye to the internet congregation. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.